Hey everyone, it's your girl Carly Jones and this is Makeup and Murder. Hey all you crazies, your girl is back and I'm super excited. So I have a great story or great case for you today. But as always, first, let's get into the makeup. So my favorite product of the week is the Kylie Jenner Dear Santa um, little mini palette that she came out with. Now, if you follow me on social media, I started my spooky season looks for Halloween. And my first one was a super easy and cute Harley Quinn. And I did use the reds that is in this palette. And it is gorgeous. Like, the pigment held, the reds are perfect, it's a perfect red. Um, you have a little bit of a reddish orange, you have a darker red, you have shimmer, um, you have foil, you have all kinds of stuff. This is super, super amazing. And yeah, as always, I will go ahead and put it on my social media account so you can see with a link. And if you wanna go check it out, you can. Now I know with Kylie Jenner, sometimes they do like a launch and then they get rid of it for a while and they bring it back. Um, I'm not sure if this is still on there, but if it is, grab it because it is, it's a pretty good red. You'll be surprised. So before I get into the case, can we just talk about the fact that it's October? I have waited so long, so long for spooky season in October to get here with all the crap going on in the world. This is the time of year that I am always super excited about. I come out of my shell with the makeup, the looks, Halloween, movies, shows, documentaries, you name it. Listen, I'm sure a lot of you did it too, but September 1st, I started putting on my Halloween stuff. It's like September 1st on through December is like the best time of the year. I mean, I'm just, I'm super excited. No joke, I'm that girl driving to work Monday through Friday, starting September 1st, singing This is Halloween from The Nightmare Before Christmas. You don't believe me? You can ask my kids. They get embarrassed. Soon as September 1st hit, boom, this is Halloween and I sing it at the top of my lungs. Who is with me? I cannot be the only one. But anyway, enough of all that. It is time to get into the case. So this story that I'm going to talk to you guys about today hits so hard to me. Um, it is about a military family, which if you've listened to my past um, episodes, I am a military spouse. I am a military wife. My husband is an active duty um, army soldier. So yeah, this kind of hits hard for me. But I'm going to I'm going to stop talking. I'm done. Sip it. This is the story of the Eastburn murders. You ready? This story fell into my lap the other day while I was doing my makeup and I had never heard of this case before. It literally just 
popped out of nowhere. This case is about a murder of a military family at a post, an area that I am very, very familiar with in Fayetteville, North Carolina, the home of Fort Bragg Army Post, as well as Pope Army Air Force Base. So of course, I was all ears. I even had another case all set up and ready to share with you this week until this one popped up. And I just had to discuss this one first, and you will see why. But before I get started, let me just tell you, it's cases like this that just make me so angry, as I am sure it will do the same to you. I'm not quite sure if it's due to there being children involved or the fact that this case involves military soldiers, but honestly, it's both. This case is about Katie, Kara, and Aaron Eastburn. The Eastburn Family Murders. Gary Eastburn was an active captain in the Air Force whose family was stationed at Pope Air Force Base, which is the, on the other side of Fort Bragg Army Post in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Now, at the time of this story in 1985, Gary Eastburn had just received news that he was going to be reassigned to a new position working in the UK, which had been a dream of his. But before him and his family could relocate, he was instructed to complete a three-month training in Montgomery, Alabama. Now, any fellow military spouse knows this is a tough situation. Being without your significant other for a period of time is very hard, and Gary felt the exact same way. Gary did not want to leave his wife, Katie, and their three little girls who were all under the age of five. Now, I don't want to be the one of those um, people to say, it's just military life, which yes, it is. But to us, the ones that have to go through it, it's a tough thing to have to do. Not to mention, I believe this was going to be their first time away from one another. So yeah, it was really hard. In this era, back in the 80s, before cell phones and email, Gary kept in touch with the girls through nightly telephone calls every Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which would be 7 p.m. in Alabama as well as writing letters back and forth to each other. Many knew the Eastburns as that nice, young family. Katie was the mother. She was quiet and reserved and was always tending to her blonde, brown-eyed little girls. And everyone described the little girls as beautiful, sweet, and loving. They would never harm anyone. On Saturday, May 11th, the day before Mother's Day, Gary Eastburn waited by the phone for his call from his wife, Katie. Five minutes passed. Then 10 minutes went by, and he began thinking, maybe the girls' dance class ran late. They will call. 15 minutes had went by with no word from his wife, so he decided to reach out to her. So he called the house, but didn't get any answer. Hours had flown by, and still no call from Katie. So Gary Eastburn reached out to a friend in North Carolina and asked them to call the police and go over to the home to check on her. Deputies were then dispatched to the house, knocked on the door, and again, no answer. He peeked around the outside of the home, but everything seemed just fine. It was a quiet night on a quiet street in Summerhill. The Fayetteville-Fort Bragg part of North Carolina has always had a high crime rate. The area in the 80s was consumed with teen boys away from their home and families for the first time. Of course, they would go to bars and get in trouble. Some escalated to committing violent crimes. This happened quite often that the residents of the area became used to it. But that wasn't the case for Summerhill, an upper-middle-class neighborhood usually reserved for higher-ranking officers. So they thought everything was just fine, but before completely disregarding the scene, 
the deputy walked over to the neighbor's home to see if they had seen the Eastburn girls or if he had seen anything unusual, and he said no, and seemed to be a little annoyed that they had knocked on his door so late. Well, okay, it's kind of strange. But later that visit from the deputy ended up sticking in the back of the neighbor's mind, because when he woke up the next day and looked over at the Eastburn's home, something didn't seem right. Their Toyota station wagon was still sitting in the same spot and had not budged. And maybe Katie mentioned something about driving to visit Gary and okay, possibly they could have gotten um, a bus ride or a taxi, but the girl's stroller was left at the side door. Not only that, but the newspapers were starting to pile up at their front door. The neighbor thought to himself, it wasn't a day that went by without him watching those girls run up and down the street or um, playing on their backyard jungle gym. So he walked over and rang the doorbell, but did not hear anyone walking to the door to answer it. No commotion at all, completely silent, until a split second went by, and he heard a baby crying. It sounded like the Eastburn's youngest girl, Jana. He didn't know what to do, so he called over to his wife, who rushed over and called the Eastburn's babysitter, who may have known something, anything at all. And then she reached out to the sheriffs once again. Another deputy is dispatched to the home, and this time he feels something is strange as he hears the baby screaming. So I assume protocol at the time was that you could not enter into a home without backup or whatnot, which, I mean, something is clearly off here. The babysitter finally arrives after being called, and she says she can see the baby through the window and says frantically, we have to go in and get her. So the deputy continues um, to sense the home and says okay screw protocol let's go in and get this baby he breaks the screen to the window and climbs in but as soon as he enters the home he is blasted in the face with the most unbelievable smell the smell of decomposition and poor baby Jana was found alone in her crib she was gaunt pale and so dehydrated that her teeth were starting to turn black from malnutrition and had been sitting in her soil for days when the deputy pulled her out, she looked awful. Poor baby girl, it's heartbreaking. But what they didn't know was how close she actually was to a terrible fate. The doctors actually said that she was only a couple hours away from dying. When the police arrived, the rest of the scene was even more terrible. It showed that there had been a struggle in the living room, which led them to a trail in the master bedroom. They first saw three-year-old Erin. She was laid by her parents' bed with a pillow covering her face. When deputies removed the pillow from Erin's face, they see that her throat had been so severely cut that she was nearly decapitated. When the detective walked around the bed from where Erin was laying, there lie 32-year-old Katie Eastburn. Her bra had been pulled up towards her neck and her underwear had been cut off and she had been stabbed over 14 times in her chest. They had found Katie, and they found Aaron and Jana, but where was five-year-old Kara? Detectives look around the home and still had not found her. They finally find her underneath the Star Wars blanket in the girls' room. Just like her mother, she had been stabbed multiple times in her chest. The head detective on the scene knew he had to contact Gary. They knew he was sitting by his phone in Alabama waiting to find out what was going on. So they called Gary, and they wouldn't tell him right away what had happened. They just kept saying, you know, 
Gary, we need you to get home right away. There has just been a death in the family, but would not go any further extent on what had happened. Where he arrived back home, his entire world had came crashing down and Gary was just mortified and shambles. All he had left was little Jana, who was at the hospital and far from being healthy. It would take Jana some time to get back to being well-nourished and back to her normal self, and even more time to overcome the mental trauma of what she had seen at such a very young age. Apparently, Jana's development was delayed a long time due to this kind of trauma. It would be months before she would ever start speaking again. And when she did, they recommended her see a child psychologist to interview her, to see if there was anything they could find out from what Jana may have remembered, anything at all that point, to a person of interest who committed this awful crime. It is so terribly sad, you guys, and heartbreaking Because when they would show her photos of her mother, Katie, she would just kiss the picture and say, Mommy is working. And that's that's so terrible. When they would show her the photos of the home, she would begin to get very upset and throw things across the room. And she would say that she needed to hide from the monster or burglar, which made them believe that young girls had come into her room to tell her that she had to hide. So that tells them that maybe the perpetrator didn't know there was another child in the home, which would have been the result of little Jana surviving. Both Gary and the detectives had a lot of questions that still needed to be answered. According to the detectives, it seemed that the main motivation was sexual assault with Katie, but what kind of cruel monster would also murder these sweet, innocent little girls? Yes, they thought sexual assault, but there had been something missing from the home. There was a metal lockbox. The other had been approximately $300 that had been taken from Katie's underwear drawer. And the last thing was Katie's ATM debit card. They think, okay, possibly they have the why answered. Could have been this horrible monster with sexual desires and tendencies that wanted cash. But they want to know who. Since so many physical evidence was found, they thought they would have the answer to who sooner rather than later. The first thing was they quickly knew someone had to clean up since there had been an absence of blood for such a gruesome crime. But when they test the home with luminol, now for those who are not familiar with luminol, um, luminol is a chemical with a blue glow when mixed with an appropriate oxidizing agent. Luminol is a white to pale yellow crystalline solid that is soluble polar organic solvents, but insoluble in water. Whew, that's a lot. <laughs> Forensic investigators use this. This is so cool. But they use this to detect trace amounts of blood at crime scenes as it reacts with irons and hemoglobin. And that goes for using bleach to clean blood as well. It can remove the stain to the naked eye, but forensic experts can use this application of substances such as luminol to show that it was present. Remember that, guys. You cannot remove blood with bleach. You use luminol, it will always show up like a red light. So, they spray it all over the home and it lights up like Christmas. Ta-da! All over the walls and the sink in the bathroom, it's everywhere. Even in the carpet, 
where it looks like bloody footprints all in the home. There was even a bloody towel that was left at the scene, and they later found, found out that it is an unknown blood sample that would be found on that towel that they assume belonged to the attacker or attackers. This could be multiple ones. At this point, we don't know. Detectives also find hair that did not match any of the Eastburns. One sample of the hair was found in the master bedroom. Another head hair was found on Kara's chest in the girls' room, and a pubic hair was found on the couch in the living room where the attack had started. A pubic hair, you guys. In addition to blood and hair samples, they also find unknown fingerprints all over the inside of the home and show prints outside of the home. And finally, the most important piece of evidence, semen. There was a semen sample collected from Katie's rape kit. Now, let's think about it for a minute. The two best things a homicide detective can have is one, physical evidence, and two, a witness. And in this case, they actually hit the jackpot. They have both. They have both evidence and a witness. With all the physical evidence in and out of the home, police were also contacted by a potential witness named Patrick. He stated that he was outside near the East Ferns home the night of the murders, and he saw someone around 3 a.m. around the area of the home. Hmm. That's very fishy, right? Why were you out and about at 3 a.m., Mr. Patrick? Well, he said that he had just left his girlfriend's house, which, okay, sure. I have to mention this before we move on. So, Patrick had some encounters with the law in the past and would obtain even more run-ins after he became a potential witness. No surprise here. But people actually tried to have his witness statement discredited. But he had no reason to come forward. I mean, most people who, I mean, I would think, who are in trouble with the law, they don't just come out and speak freely of something that they saw. They would rather stay out of it, kind of like an out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. So for me, I'll bite. I would have listened to what he had to say. So what he says in this statement of that night was, in the early hours of that morning, he says he is leaving his girlfriend's house and is walking down the Eastburn Street, and he stumbles upon a tall white male who appears to him to be around 6'2", 6'3"-ish, who had blonde hair with a mustache and a large flared nose. Okay. Patrick went on to say that he believes he had been wearing a beanie on his head, a members-only jacket, and had a trash bag thrown over his shoulder. It was said that the tall white male said something to Patrick along the lines of, quote, getting an early start this morning, unquote, or something along those lines. And then he gets into a car and drives off. Now, this car that Patrick describes is a white Chevette. With all this information, the police are able to draw a composite sketch of this tall mystery man. Everything is starting to come together for detectives. With all the physical evidence, description of the eyewitnesses, now we have a composite sketch. And with all that comes more leads. Remember the babysitter? She ends up telling detectives two very important things that really, really get their attention. The first thing is that weeks leading up to the murders, Katie had said some said something in along the lines that someone had been stalking her and following her and had even went as far as calling the Eastern home. Most of the time, this person would call and say nothing at all. And then other times, 
they were some type of sexual nature. Unfortunately, with it being in the late 80s, the police had no way to track where these calls were coming from. Doesn't that just make you feel just angry? Doesn't that just make you mad? But at least they knew now that someone had been watching the girls. This person could be the suspect. This person could be that man. The second thing they got from the babysitter was that Katie had put an ad in the local paper about finding a home for their dog, Dixie. With them moving to the UK once Gary Gary finishes his three-month training in Alabama, they thought the travel would be too much on Dixie, so they decided to find her a new home. Now, the babysitter tells detectives that days before the murder, she took a call from someone named Angela, who had inquired about the dog, so she left a note to Katie about this call, which was no longer visible in the home. And the dog was not present during the time of the attacks either. So yes, maybe the dog was actually adopted by another family and this person could have been the very last person to interact with Katie and the girls. This person could very well know something. Six days have passed since the Eastburn murders when law enforcement puts out a call to the public on the local news looking for that person who adopted the Eastburn's dog and requested for them to come in for questioning so they can obtain their recollection of the encounter with the Eastburn family. A woman named Angela is watching the news and has been following their story closely. When they make the announcement, she looks at her husband, Tim, who was an Army staff sergeant at the time and is at home on leave with his wife and new baby girl. She says, Tim, you must go to the police that's you. And they actually show a picture. Well, not really a picture because they don't know who it is at this time. But um, they, I mean, they have it all on the line for them. They knew it's them. They, they know they need to go and tell them what had happened to um, remove him as being a suspect, you know. So Tim goes. He goes to the police station and tells them, the woman at the front desk, that he needs to talk to the investigators about the Eastburn case. He told her that he was the one that they were looking for. He is the person who adopted their Eastburn's dog. So he takes a seat, and about the time he sits down, the lead investigator walks in, and his, you guys, his explained to us, like I also read the book too, and I'll explain a little more to that too, but they explain that his his jaw immediately drops to the floor. And, you know, with him, without him knowing who Tim was or why he was even there sitting in the lobby in the first place, the investigator sees him and just stops. He is looking... At a live version, you guys, of that composite sketch that had been done by their witness, Patrick. Tim is tall, blonde, with a wide nose, with a mustache. He couldn't believe it. I mean, think about it. You walking in there, not even knowing who this guy is, and you automatically think, oh my God, this is the guy. This is it right here. He brings him back to the interrogation room and he immediately gets a bad vibe from Tim and already doesn't like him. Maybe he is a little too cocky, you know, too sure of himself, that type of thing. I mean, I guess from his standpoint, he feels he needs to be that way because he knows why he's there. They are asking him all these questions to basically rule him out of being a suspect. The question even comes out. Tim asks them, hey, am I even a suspect? Do I need to get a lawyer? What's going on? And they tell him, no, not at all. We just need to ask you a few questions since we believe you were the last person to see Katie and the girls alive. And they tell Tim he needs to be cooperative and tell them everything that he knows to help them find out what had happened. So Tim tells them that he drove over to the East Ferns to pick up the dog on Tuesday. 
two days before the police believed the murder happened. So we're all wanting to know, where was Tim Hennis on the night of the, murder, uh, night of the murders? Well, guess what? He can't give police and detectives a solid alibi. That's very, very sketchy. He says he had taken his wife and daughter out of town that day to visit his family or their family. He had dropped them off, um, drove back home alone with no one to vouch for him. We know during this interview he was cautious, but he willingly gave them samples, blood, hair, saliva, the whole nine. While they continue questioning him and collecting all of these samples, they're also working behind the scenes. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, I would. This man just so happened to be in the home of the Eastburns prior to the murder and matches the sketch to a T. And <laughs> I'm super sorry, but I'm sure you all heard my little phone going off. I thought I had it on vibrate. My husband called me to see what kind of tea I wanted. Nonetheless, just, you know, I want this to be as real as possible. Like I'm just sitting down talking through a mic and I'm just telling you guys a story and we're just, you know, we're just vibing. You know what I'm saying? But like I said, anyway, back to the East Fern story. So other officers were putting together a photo lineup for the witness, Patrick. They actually found a mugshot of Tim Hennis from way back in the day when he had written a bad check. Okay. They put his photo together with five other men. Patrick's, um, you know, he looks at all of them and immediately calls out number two. You, that guy, right there. Is that the man that you saw? And he says yes. And began pointing to Tim's photo. Another major part was Tim Hennis's car. That very same car that he drove to the police station for the interview that was sitting in the parking lot of the police station was the white Chevette. It matched Patrick's description of the car down to a science. They never arrest him at that moment. They let him go after almost seven hours of questioning. But once those seven hours ended, they now had their first suspect. And of course, they wanted to see if it was just a coincidence or was there actually more evidence pointing to Tim being the perpetrator. So they finally found the circumstantial evidence they were looking for. A day or two after the murders, Hennis is seen by his neighbors burning something in a barrel in his backyard. Super, super sketchy. Super sketchy. They say this is something out of the ordinary that they have never seen him do before. Then we find out that a dry cleaner that comes forward that says, you know, super strange coincidence that Tim had brought in a member-only jacket to be cleaned. The day after the murders. The day after. Not only that, but now Tim's landlord says that he had been late on his rent for the month. His rent was said to be $310. Right after the murder occurred, Tim pays his rent and a $35 late fee. And we know that $300 was taken from the Eastburn home. So at this point, it is not looking great for old Tim Hennis. But there is more witness testimony that actually seals the deal with investigators. Along with the $300 that was taken from the home, Katie's ATM card was also taken and it was used. The police were able to find out where and when it was used, and they actually find the person who used it right after him. It was a woman named Miss Cook. She said that Tim Hennis is the man she had been drawing, or she had been seen drawing the money from the ATM before her. So with all of that, the police believe they have him. 
This was their guy. They just knew they had found the killer. They could feel it. They arrest him and charge him with three counts of murder in the first degree and one charge of rape. Right away, of course, he was offered a plea deal. But he refused because he he didn't want to plead guilty for something he knows he didn't do. He said, all you have is circumstantial evidence. He tells them, he tells them, go ahead, test all the physical evidence you have. I didn't do it. So they do just that. They test all the physical evidence that was collected inside and outside of the Eastburn home. But keep him, but keep him in mind, this was a time where testing DNA did not exist. But, you know, they could still test blood types, hair, even fingerprints, things of that nature. Now, Blood testing was a little off because back then, because when there is so much blood at a crime scene, what happens is most of the one specific blood type overpowers the other types. And you would, have, of course, see more of the victim's blood than the killer's perpetrators. And that is exactly what happened in the Eastburn case. One overrode the other. When it all boils down to the blood sample, unfortunately, came back inconclusive. When the fingerprints came back, it was negative as a match for Tim or was inconclusive as well because there wasn't enough of the print itself to determine 100%. They move on and test the hair that was found at the scene, and you guessed it, it had come back as a negative match to Tim as well. What is going on? What is going on? You hate to admit it, but he was right. None of the physical evidence matched him, but the prosecution already had it in their head that he was the one. And they were going to move forward with the circumstantial case. The trial began approximately one year after the murders. They called up Patrick, who testified that he saw Tim Hennis that night leaving the Eastburns' home. And of course, they called Miss Cook, who seen Tim Hennis using Katie's Eastburns' ATM card as well. And they told the jury about the rent, the members' only jacket, and the dry cleaners, and of course, the barrel where he had been burning stuff. And last but not least, they ended up making a slideshow of all of the crime scene photos as well as the autopsy photos. They showed multiple photos of this horrific and gruesome crime scene that I'm sure were burned into these jurors' minds. I mean, it would be to mine. Now, this might have been a little excessive in my opinion, but they kept showing the slideshow for a total of 90 minutes. Yes, you heard me. 90 minutes looking at each individual photo and connecting the dots to every motion the prosecutors pointed out the jury only took three days to deliberate a guilty verdict on all counts and sentenced to death tim's lawyers were quite shocked they could not believe what they were hearing they honestly and truly believed their client was innocent and thought this was a horrible horrible presentation of the justice system how could they find him guilty with no hard physical evidence which, yes, they find a lot of physical evidence, but none that matched Tim Hennis. It just baffles me. It's crazy. Whose pubic hair was found? Whose hair was found on Kara's body and the fingerprints? Who did they belong to? They were sure it was someone else who committed these crimes. But who was it? But get this. Just days after being booked into the prison, Tim received a bizarre letter that might explain that question. The letter he received read, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. What? 
Super crazy stuff. But I have actually seen photos of this letter, and the letter looks like it had been written by a person's non-dominant hand to make it look sloppy on purpose. So a lot of people were thinking this letter thing was just a hoax, as did I. But even if it wasn't a hoax, there was no way to truly find out or question this so-called Mr. X. Tim's attorneys had to start with the appeal process and get him a new trial based on what they could actually prove. Now, what they thought they could prove was that the 90-minute slideshow had pushed the jury over the edge to convict Tim. Now, from what I gather is that, yes, the jury has the right to know what type of case they are dealing with, but Tim's attorneys believed it was just too much, like an overkill, if you will. I mean, 90 minutes, is it's a long time. But the judge agreed with the defense that the jury should have seen photos of the crime scene, but that the 90-minute slideshow was just the prosecutor's way of trying to get the jury riled up. And honestly, they probably would have convicted just anyone just so they would stop showing all these gruesome photos. So with all that being said, Tim was granted a new trial. Now, the second trial comes around and it is actually 90 miles away from the Fayetteville. And this time around, they know the prosecution strategy. The first thing they go after is Patrick, remember, the eyewitness. So he had gotten into some trouble between the trials, nothing huge, but something along the lines of public intoxication, and apparently telling an officer that he couldn't arrest him and that he needed to talk to the DA because he was a valuable person. So they go after his credibility, of course. The second thing they proceed to go after was the other eyewitness, which was Miss Cook. The defense points out that by the time they had found Miss Cook, Tim Hennis's face had been all over media, all over news outlets, you name it. So to them, it was like she had not described him from memory. They believe she could have seen the news and just pointed him out from seeing photos. The other thing they bring up is the transaction that she made after him was three and a half minutes later, which, okay, it doesn't sound like a whole lot of time in between, but They did something smart. They made the jury sit in silence for three and a half minutes just to show how that three minutes is very crucial. If you think about it, three and a half minutes is a decent amount of time for one or maybe even two people to also use that ATM machine before Ms. Cook did. The third point they spoke about in the trial is the members only jacket. Now remember, the dry cleaner stated that he had brought it in the next day um, to have it dry dry cleaned, super odd. We already knew that. Also, like he was trying to cover up evidence. Well, what they actually learned after doing a little more digging is that when they talk to experts, dry cleaners actually have to use a special chemical to remove blood. When they speak to the dry cleaner, they stated that they did not use that chemical. They just, you know, did a regular cleaning. So they do a side-by-side comparison. And to test this theory, they put blood on one of the jackets and have it dry cleaned and with that special chemical, and perform a luminol test. Even with the special cleaning, the luminol test lights up and shows blood residue. When they test Tim's jacket with the luminol, there wasn't any trace of blood that showed up. Just to show the jury that, yeah, he may have had it cleaned, but the fact of the matter is, if there had been blood on Tim's jacket, it still would have shown up with that specific luminol test. Now, the fourth thing they look at is the burn barrel. They said it was too odd to have seen him doing that since he had never done anything like that before. But the charred remains were actually collected as evidence. And again, nothing they found was in any connection to the East Ferns. So they had brought all the key points of the prosecution and they now start to conduct their own line of questioning that they believe should give the jury even more reasonable doubt. 
There were footprints found outside of the home that were three sizes smaller than Tim's. Why didn't any of the hair that the detectives collected match? Why didn't the footprints as well as the fingerprints match Tim? And to undermine Patrick, the prosecutor's witness, they call in another witness. You guys listen to this. They call in another witness who looks exactly, looks exactly like Tim Hennis. Tall, blonde, and a mustache. And it just so happens that when they talked to him, this kid was a kid who lived just a couple of blocks away from the Eastburn's home. He used to walk the streets late at night when he couldn't sleep. And he would walk the streets with a beanie and a members-only jacket. But just wait. So apparently the, the police had found this boy during the initial investigation. But once they realized that he looked so much like Tim, and it would seem very confusing, they actually took his hat and his jacket and put it in a police officer's trunk to hide it from the defense. And didn't give the jacket and everything back until Tim Hennis was put on death row after the first trial. So it's that time again, and the jury barely deliberates, and they come back with a not guilty verdict on all counts. Now Tim's little girl, Christina, is now a toddler, and she just slings her little arms around his neck while reporters interview him about the verdict being overturned. Everyone in Tim's life knew this was it, and knew this was justice. All of the times that things went wrong in the legal system for him, this was an example of the justice system getting it together, you know? But no one on the prosecution side was happy about the outcome. The Eastburn's police and prosecution could not believe what they had just witnessed. A killer walk out of a courtroom, a free man. Now, after his release, Tim's attorneys gave him some words of advice. They told him, Go ahead and settle down somewhere and enjoy your life and get out of the military. But he didn't. He decided to stay in the Army. To him, it was the only life he knew outside of the prison cell. Tim went out to have a successful Army career. Now, this is where it starts to really, really, really irritate me. All of my fellow military friends and and spouses will understand. And you will find out why towards the end of this episode. So once he enlists back into the army, he obtains three years worth of back pay from the military while he was incarcerated. He then also received a good conduct medal and was deployed to Saudi Arabia and was a part of Desert Storm. He went to Somalia during the time of Black Hawk Down and he proceeded with his career and moved to Fort Drum in New York, Fort Lewis in 98, and had a little boy and retired after 23 years as a master sergeant. Him and his wife who had stood by him through everything that went on, had another child, and since the trials, Tim had an almost spotless record after the Eastburn case and was a total free man. So good for him, right? Great family man. Possibly a poster child for wrongful convictions and now a respected Army military man, maybe even a role model for some young soldiers. And for 20 years, the Eastburn case went cold. No new leads, No new evidence, no witnesses, nothing. No one even wanted to reinvestigate this because they believed that any chance they had of obtaining a suspect had been blown by now. Our legal system here in the United States, we have what's called double jeopardy, which means once you're found innocent by a jury, you cannot be tried again for the same crime. Somewhere along the lines, the Eastburn case comes to life again. (laughs) It's 2005. 
we are now able to test DNA. And remember those vaginal swabs that had never been tested? So they said, you know what? It can't hurt. Let's go ahead and test it. And guess what they find? They get a hit. When they received the results, the investigator called Gary Eastburn right away. Once Gary picks up the phone, the investigator asked him if he was sitting down because you will never believe what the investigators was about to tell him. The semen found inside of Katie Eastburn was an exact match to Tim Hennis. It was said to be 1.2 quadrillion times more likely to belong to Tim's than anyone else in North Carolina. Every single person was in complete and total shock. That was my exact reaction as well. How could someone who committed such a terrible crime go on and live such a normal, fulfilling life? Not to mention an entire, an entire military career and was even able to retire. The investigators thought, what are we, what are we going to do? Now we have the confirmed DNA sample, but with having the law of double jeopardy, not being able to try him again, what will happen now? Everyone and their mother have been trying to find some way to explain the results. And of course, some doubt arose. Because a few years later, the lab that they had used in North Carolina was said to have had withheld or dismissed evidence to help prosecutors with other convictions. Which to me is such a scary thing to hear. It literally gives me goosebumps to think this actually can happen or will happen. And you think with DNA, it's a done, sealed deal, one and done type thing. But when... Things like that happen, it does call for cases to be more caution, unfortunately. It's a scary thing to think about. So when they did the investigation and all of this came out, they were approximately 10 cases where they had had evidence that would be used or distorted to secure death penalty convictions. And three of those people had already been put to death. After obtaining the death penalty, by the time this information arose, you guessed it, this had put a horrible, horrible taste in people's mouths with the Eastern case, but it was good to know that the DNA was not tested by the same lab. The only testing that particular lab tested was the hair and the finger um, fingerprints prior. Thank the good Lord above. But of course, it had people thinking, well, what if it happened to the other cases? Could it have happened to this one too? They were so worried about this that they ended up testing a second swab that was held in evidence by another lab. This lab found, yet again, a perfect match to Tim Hennis. So is he going to just get away with this crime because double jeopardy? Oh, no, no, no. No, no, my friends. He was a military man, remember? The army can put him on trial for murder. They make up their own rules, baby. Now, I know you crazies are thinking, but wait, he served his time and has since retired. True. But he is still obtaining benefits. He is and always will be the military's property. So CID shows up at his home and serves him papers stating that his retirement is revoked and he was being pulled back into active duty. Yep, there you go. They told him that he was going to be tried for the Eastman murders in military court. Tim's defense strategy was different than it was the first time, and it totally backfires on him. Their story now is that Tim actually had consensual sex with Katie Eastburn when we went and picked up the dog approximately two days before the murders. This is when start. This is when it starts to hit below the belt, in my opinion. Tim's attorney went on to say that this type of thing happens all the time. With military wives, 
when their soldiers are away. Um, excuse me, no, sir. Mind you, he is making this statement in the middle of a military court with a room full of military men, who most of them are probably married. I mean, it is a complete 180 because his whole thing the entire time was he never had sex with Katie, that the only interaction he ever had with her was when he picked up the dog, and now it's being switched to, okay, yeah, it was consensual. No, I don't think so. So they ask, why? Why are you just now bringing this up? And his reply was, he didn't want to upset Gary, which is Katie's husband, which really, like he would honestly believe you anyway. I don't buy it. Now, what I'm about to tell you is it's still still kind of still kind of iffy to me so as you're as you're wondering as as was I what about the pubic hair that was found who did that belong to but it wasn't Tim's or the blood that was found on that towel in the bathroom there were even follicles found underneath Katie and the girl's nails I'm not sure we will ever know because for the old evidence to brought be brought into the military court the the judge did not approve it they wanted to bring it in, but he told him no. So when the defense asked for that evidence to be brought up into question, of course, it was denied. Again, Tim Hennis is sentenced to death by the military court and will be spending his time at the U.S. Army Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where he is one of six inmates currently on military's death row. guys isn't that case just super super crazy like i said i was sitting there one day just going through youtube and documentaries and things like that and it just pops up and i literally just stopped in my tracks and i could not believe it it's just so crazy but i do want to go ahead and mention something so i believe it was probably 15 years prior to the eastburn murders there was this huge humongous case um actually in fayetteville north carolina about a um captain or a sergeant captain in the army as well his name was jeffrey mcdonald it was just this huge big crazy case back in the 70s um it it started off with him blaming um some people who were trying to portray the manson murders because back then that was around the time that the manson murders happened it was just huge just huge huge crazy thing also, um, actually have a documentary on it. Um, it is called um, Wilderness of Air. It is super, super good. I recommend you try that. Um, and then that book, they also have a book about that as well. And that is called Fatal Vision. I recommend that one too. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, it happened about 15 years prior to this one, um, which if you are interested on the Eastburn murder book, that one is called Innocent Victims. And I highly suggest you check that out. It has a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of um, awesome things in that book as well. But that is it. That is a wrap for another great episode. I'm so glad, so glad that you guys tuned in with me. Um, but go ahead and find me on social media, Instagram, Carly with a K, or the Makeup and Murder podcast, or find me on Facebook, the Makeup and Murder Facebook page, or Carly Jones, and that is my personal page. But that is it. I'll see you guys next time. Stay safe. Yeah.